Hi, and welcome to Press Pass with the Editor on the Circus Voices Network, brought to you by Circus Talk News. This is Kim Campbell, the editor of Circus Talk News, and this monthly news podcast will revolve around the circus and performing arts industry and provide front row access to what's happening around the performance world. Now for some breaking news. The journal Pioneer reported recently that Shirley the Elephant died at age 72 after having survived a notorious 1963 circus ship fire. She was the oldest elephant living at the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee and the second oldest elephant in North America. Writer Brianna Holmes of Black America Web wrote an article about the history of Universal Circus. She explains how Cedric Walker founded the iconic American Universal Circus with the idea of showcasing black artists' talents beyond singing and dancing. And now, as COVID restrictions ease, the Universal Circus has held free performances for the homeless community. Their other feats of altruism include raising awareness for the underrepresentation of African Americans on the bone marrow registry. The Las Vegas Review Journal reports that former Zumanity artists have joined forces to create their own Cirque show. The show is Apero, and tickets are sold in small groups. The artists have adapted their existing acts to a smaller theater and perform with socially distant measures in place. In the UK, a compulsory licensing system for buskers is being developed in London. This new order may make busking illegal on more than 1,000 London streets. The new system would require buskers to pay a license fee even to busk in public areas. We got the inside scoop from a UK-based artist who says in their area, the Westminster Council has been using the pandemic as a smokescreen to introduce draconian laws to severely restrict street performance in the West End. There have been organized efforts to push back with the backing of celebrities like Eddie Izzard and organizations like the Musicians Union, Culture Hustle, and the Secret Comedy Club standing up for street artists. And for the last bit of news, apparently we're number one. Circus Talk was honored to discover that our podcast, Circus Voices, was voted number one circus podcast in Feedspot's 20 Circus Podcasts You Must Follow in 2021. We were listed among our favorites in the circus podcasting world, such as Circus Stories, The Artist Athlete, Not My Monkeys, Circus Futures. Thanks, Feedspot, and all the circus folk who are tuning in here. Speaking of circus podcasts, two of our favorites, Hideaway Circus and The Artist Athlete, recently celebrated their 100th episode, which is a major milestone for any podcaster. We checked in with Hideaway to ask their advice and top tips for making it to 100 episodes. Hey, Circus Talk fans. I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the Hideaway Circus Podcast, which is an interview show featuring artists, entrepreneurs, and founders of circus companies from all over the world, but mostly North America, talking about their lives, their backgrounds, and current events. Often in the first 20 minutes of the show, Lindsay and I will dissect what we think is going on in the circus industry, whether that's news or analysis or the latest updates of what's going on with other companies or our own producing company. We started the podcast back in 2015 before podcasting was cool or anyone really wanted to do it. And now we have hit our 100th episode, which is very exciting. The 100th episode features Tom Schumacher, who is the president of Disney Theatrical Group and was the first person to ever bring Cirque du Soleil to the U.S. And he recounts that story. He recounts making Lion King on Broadway and the movie. So if you like either of those two kinds of things, it's probably an episode worth checking out. Circus Talk has asked us to give a few tips on how to get to your 100th episode of whatever kind of circus content you are making. Lindsay, what do you think is the trick to getting 
to 100. Not stopping. <laughs> you took the answer out of my mouth. The trick is don't <laughs> quit. Anything you want to do, if you quit, that's the easiest way to stop doing it. What else is a good piece of advice for people? Have a partner who will push you to keep doing it. I like that as well. I think one interesting thing about Lindsay and I, as far as doing the podcast, is we do it all ourselves at home, in our home office. I edit it on the computer. We record it with microphones we bought on Amazon. We call up people we know. And it's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. And I feel like we've learned a ton from listening to other people. And I hope other people who listen to the podcast feel like they learn some of the same things, whether that be how to start a circus company, how to advance your career as a circus performer, Really, there's so many different things we've talked about on all of these episodes, and I feel like there's something for for everyone. And what's made it possible to keep going is that it doesn't really cost all that much because we do it ourselves. We post it ourselves. It's not so difficult to keep going. All it really is is keeping our motivation up. Yeah, and I think one piece of advice I'd have for any creative person who wants to create work is to reach out and see if you can find partners to do it with. Having a partner is so fulfilling in so many ways. And even that's just like bouncing ideas off each other, figuring out where to do a, a, your show, share aerial rigging, all this stuff. Um, I think that's something that's come out of the pandemic. And that's a theme that we hear a lot on the podcast of just trying to find relationships to keep you going. And I think a podcast host can use a, a partner in crime. <laughs> Amen to that. Hope you guys have uh, enjoyed listening to our podcast if you've done so before. If you haven't, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including CircusTalk.com. Uh, shout out to Andrea and Kim, who've been supporting us since the very beginning. Uh, without them, I don't know if uh, we would have gotten such a wide audience as we have now. We hope you guys like it. Uh, and here's to another 100 episodes. Here's to 100 more. You can catch our podcast, Circus Voices, as well as the Artist Athletes 100th episode and Hideaway's 100th episode on Circus Talk News or wherever you get your fine, fine podcasts. And now for a look at some industry insights. This is a segment where we take the long view of what's happening in the circus sector. It's been just over a year since the pandemic has created a quarantine zone around the world blocking live performances, and one year ago last week we held our first panel to discuss concerns and issues that were unique to the circus sector. To mark the occasion of the one-year anniversary of this show, last week we had a reunion with the original attendees titled, Is Circus Okay? Urgent Concerns Revisited, One Year Into COVID. Here are a few quotes from our returning panel guests. Vincent Massager of Dolce Vita Spectacles said, there are going to be less players, less shows and artists, and it's going to take a couple of years before things can get better. We'll lose a lot of incredible talent, and that makes me sad. Humanity has a lot to learn from what we've been going through. It's shit that this happened, but it's not as bad as the climate change that is coming right now. That's the big thing we're going to have to deal with. Matthew Jessner of Dragon said, The art form needs to be vital. You're not going to have it, circus, as a career extension from competition. The only people that are going to survive this are the people from whom it's absolutely vital as a form of artistic expression, and that's going to be the end game. Nikki Miller, circus artist and director, said, I'm of the belief and opinion that the performing arts is a needle of public health, and also a medicine for public health, and the robustness of an arts and cultural sector on any scale, in any community, even on a block, is reflective of the amount of vitality and the amount of imagination in that space. We're in a public health crisis, and the government does not see what we do as a form of medicine, and frankly, I think that is a huge problem. 
Adolfo Rosamundo of Juggling Magazine said, As soon as the doors open again in theaters or in squares, the circus community will find a way, slowly, to get back to our natural inclination to contribute to culture. So, a note from the editor here. I moderated both panels, and there was definitely a more realistic and somber evaluation of what has changed in the circus sector over the past year and how long it will take for the field to recover. But you should go watch the whole panel in Circus Talk to avail yourself of some of the more hopeful and concrete advice our panelists have to suggest in order to keep our practice and the art form vital, as Matthew Jessner alludes to in his quote. Shows. Here's an example of that hopeful return to live shows, coming from Australia. Antman points out that the world premiere of the show was scheduled to be at the Sydney Festival, but was postponed due to COVID. Now, as Australia has gotten the virus more under control and begun to have live performance again, The Pulse recently debuted at Adelaide Fringe Festival. Antman says, Director Darcy Grant promises a story of cause and effect. The piece also clearly sets out to celebrate the need for human contact that we've all been so deprived of this past year. In both those aims, The Pulse succeeds superbly. However, in the end, it remains an acrobatic showcase. The imagery is powerful, even disturbing. You can read the whole review on Circus Talk News. Did you know you can list your show, festival, and workshops on Circus Talk? You can even sell tickets or request pay-what-you-can donations for your event. Visit CircusTalk.com to find out how. And now, some job listings. The Circus Talk job board lists jobs of all sorts for the circus professional as well as performing arts, from auditions to administrative jobs. Here's a sample of what's up on the board right now. Located in New York, Driftwood Day Camp is looking for flying trapeze and gymnastics instructors. Work experience with children is required. They're looking for a professional and outgoing candidate. Applicants should apply by March 15th. San Francisco Circus Center is looking for a part-time remote merchandise manager. They're looking for someone dependable and detail-oriented. Applications are due March 28th. Circus Steam is looking for a new program coordinator, adept at multitasking, management, and administration. Circus Steam is located in Chicago, and applicants should apply by April 16th. The online circus festival is seeking acts for its showcase. Each participant can apply with only one continuous video act. The acts will be judged by a jury, with the finalists competing for prizes. Apply by April 2nd. Circus Talk Pro subscribers have access to the Circus Talk job database, which is updated daily by circus and performing arts festivals, programmers, and circus companies as they share their auditions and job information. If you would like to hear about more jobs, you should visit the jobs board on Circus Talk to see the most recent offerings. Circus Talk in April. This month, we'll be launching a new series on Circus Talk called 360 Degrees, Coaching Through a Holistic Lens, hosted by Stacy Clark. Stacy will be exploring what she calls the three C's of circus, coaching, casting, and career. This content will be available to Circus Talk Pro members starting in April, but that doesn't mean you can't get a dose of Stacy's wisdom and expertise about the circus sector. Just check out the latest episode of my recent interview with Stacy on Circus Voices, Audio Explorations with the editor, available on Circus Talk News for All. Here's a soundbite. The idea of looking at humans from 360 degrees there you know we look at a circus artist we know that there's certain kinds of physical attributes certain kinds of skill sets that we're trying to identify that would would serve them to become successful in a performing career so that's fine you can coach all that you can take a high level athlete and help transition them you can take someone who's trained for years and come through circus schools or dance academies and you can 
help them to become more technically proficient at what they do. But at a certain point, that's just one very small piece of this entire makeup of the human. And what I really love and what I I feel so strongly about is all those other components, the wellness, the resilience, the mental and emotional strength that that person has to be able to feed the performance. And in fact, hopefully take it to new heights because they are so grounded and so well in who they are as a human. And that kind of Mm -hmm. coaching, that, that sensitivity, I think that um, prioritization of wellness practices is something that I, I subscribe to and something that I think is just so important to help people succeed simply. Circus Talk has also launched an equity and inclusion page as part of our ongoing mission to be an inclusive resource for the worldwide circus and multidisciplinary performing arts industry. Circus Talk has created a new page called the equity and inclusion page, which is open to all visitors to the website. This page will cover topics of inclusion that we feel are of utmost importance in the circus world, namely equity and inclusion for people of all races, genders, and abilities or disabilities. Events. Here's a sampling of some of the events listed on Circus Talk for this April. The Greatest Show Online, created by Green Fools Theatre Society, will stream their online show April 1st with a showcase featuring professionals and puppets. MA Digital Open Day, hosted by Circo Media, will offer a panel discussion on April 10th online. This Zoom call will review the structure and purpose of the Circo Media Directing and Circus course. It will include a presentation by Dr. Bim Mason and Dr. Jonathan Priest, as well as a Q&A with MA students. Circo Media is located in the UK. You can get a link to these events in Circus Talk Events page. Now for our Education Spotlight with Lydia. Hi, this is Lydia, Circus Student and Circus Talk Intern. Welcome to another Education Spotlight. Let's talk all things auditions. Cirque Artif School and ESAC are all still accepting applications. Cirque Artif, located in Germany, will be holding in-person auditions from May 7th to May 9th, and they'll also have virtual auditions available. ESAC will be holding auditions the first week of July. For the New England Center for Circus Arts, auditions will be online from March 12th to 14th. La Escuela de Circo Caramba in Spain will have ordinary call auditions June 29th to July 1st in person, with results published July 2nd. We spoke to the executive director of Circadium, Shana Kennedy. While Circadium's auditions were held online March 17th, Shana shared with us how COVID-19 has affected their audition process. She said, Like all circus schools around the world that I know of, COVID-19 has required us to shift to an online audition format this year. Students are submitting videos that include selections of performance footage and training footage. We've been very specific about the exercises and skills we need to see demonstrated on the video so that, as much as possible, our audition team can evaluate the students in the same way they would in person. Then we'll have an online Zoom component where students will be able to meet faculty and get their questions answered. We're disappointed not to be able to welcome our auditioners in person this spring to our circus campus, but we will all get to know each other as best as we can on Zoom. 
and students are welcome to come visit campus later in the spring or summer if they'd like a tour. The silver lining to this is that we've all gotten very accustomed to meeting and learning online, and so in the future, we hope our audition process can be more accessible for people who live too far away to travel in person. That wraps up this segment of our Education Spotlight. Make sure to check out our advice pieces on Circus Talk for more guidance when it comes to your circus education. We have articles on deciding where to study, tips for applications, and tuition barriers. Thanks for listening and happy auditioning. It's time to meet the artists. Our guest is Steve Ward, author of the new book, Artists of Color, Ethnic Diversity and Representation in the Victorian Circus, published by Modern Vaudeville Press. Steve has a decades-long background in education, theater, and clowning, and has directed international youth circus festivals in the UK, Europe, and Brazil. He also ran his own award-winning youth circus. Now retired, he is a writer focusing on educational circus and historical aspects of the circus tradition. Here's our chat with Steve. My guest today is writer and historian Steve Ward, author of the new book, Artists of Color, Ethnic Diversity and Representation in the Victorian Circus. Steve has a decades-long background in education, theater, and clowning, and has directed international youth circus festivals in the UK, Europe, and Brazil. He also ran his own award-winning youth circus. Now retired, he's a writer focusing on educational circus and historical aspects of the tr- circus tradition. Steve, um, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Kim. <laughs> Did... I wanted to ask you if the Black Lives Matter movement uh, inspired you to write about the history of black people in Victorian circus. Yeah, I thought long and hard about this. Um, I think it was the case of the Black Lives Matter movement sort of reinforced my belief that um, this subject need to be written about. Um, I've, I've been researching and writing various books on uh, aspects of the cultural history of the circus for, for several years now. And in all my researches... I kept coming across reference to black and other ethnic minority performers. Um, but the more I tried to find out about them, there was very little information. And with the events of, particularly in the UK, in 2016, the Black Lives Matter movement um, came to the fore um, and then gathered strength over, over the sort of subsequent few years. And this was at a time when I was sort of formulating an idea to write the book. And it, it sort of reinforced this idea that this was a story that desperately needed to be told. So while the, the, the BLM movement didn't necessarily inspire it, it certainly reinforced my belief um, that it was a subject that needed exploring. Wow. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Especially uh, you kind of like jumped on my next question um, by just by mentioning how difficult it was to find information about uh, black circus artists at the time and other ethnicities. What, what was, what do you think the reason is for that? Um, I think there are several reasons. I think historically the circus has been a predominantly, or predominantly seen as a, a white art form. Um, and whereas there were a lot, there were many, um, black and, and ethnic minority performers in the Victorian circus, um, they were very often sidelined to the margins of history when it comes to recording uh, the history of the circus. Um, and it focused mainly upon white performers, uh, Eurocentric and, and sort of, uh, American performers. Uh, and and they, 
disappear. They they get referred to in one-liners, such as you know the black trapeze artist or um, the great African rope dancer. And it's taken quite a bit of research and trawling through archive material and a lot of trawling through old newspapers to piece these stories together. One or two of them were extremely well known, and one or two have been fairly well recorded. Um, the first black circus owner in the UK was a man named Pablo Fank, um, or Fonk, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name. And he's uh, he's an iconic black figure uh, of that period, and, and there's quite a lot of information about him. But there were other black circ- and ethnic circus, before, uh, circus managers at the time, such as Joseph Hillier, and very, very little is written about him. He, he's disappeared from the records almost. And um, you have to really dig to find information on these people. George Christoph was another black circus owner um, of the time in, in the Victorian era. And again, um, it took a lot of digging to find out exactly how he came to be a manager. Um, and th- this is part of the problem, is that because, particularly in the UK, you had a very Anglo-centric view of the world um, with a strict racial hierarchy with white Anglo-Saxon at the pinnacle and right down to sub-Saharan African towards the base of the pyramid. Um, So anybody who didn't fall within the white Anglo-Saxon image that many of the Victorians had um, got consigned to the margins of history. I'm so glad you did this research and found that there were amazing contributors to circus that were outside of that little uh, group of mm. white people. Mm. What is something that you learned in the process of writing this book that you hope that readers will take away uh, from reading it? I think the key thing, uh, Kim, is that there were many, many uh, black and uh, ethnic performers um, that underpinned the development of the Victorian circus. And I think it's very important in any art form that we need to understand the history of that art form in order to, to inform where it goes in the future. And I think for many people, um, both uh, within the indigenous white people in the UK I've spoken to and also to black and ethnic uh, performers I've spoken to, they've had no idea about this rich cultural history, this, this black cultural history that's ingrained in the circus. And I think that the one thing I have discovered is the fact that there were so many who contributed to the development mm-hmm. of the circus. And if people read the book and take that away with them, then I think that's, for me, that's very important. I would say so. And also the fact that, I mean, I hope you will agree, Victorian circus was very foundational in our understanding of what circus is today, right? And to know that there's a huge percentage of the artists being, you know, kind of cut out of the historical references is really uh, strange. I, I, I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very important to understand that, that um, because of the nature of society at the time, because of the nature of circus being, being a very sort of marginal art form in a sense uh, itself it was sort of beyond beyond normal society um that these things unless you were um a very very well known name um you just got consigned to sort of the 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 underlay of of history um 
and I, I think that I think things are moving now. Things are changing. I mean, like you've got shows like um, uh, I recently watched uh, The Clown, uh, Veronica Brown's um, program yeah, that she made, mm -hmm. film that she made, uh, celebrating black uh, female circus artists, which I thought was really, really sensational. Uh, you've got Omnium, which is sort of promoting diversity. You've got uh, um, Jonathan Lee Iverson. Um, uh -huh. the, the last uh, ringmaster, um, and, and and his show, and I think certainly your side of the pond, you know, things are developing rapidly, um, and I think there is this recognition. Um, I don't know if it's gone quite that far here in the UK as yet, and I'm probably going to get slapped down for saying that by somebody, um, but I think there needs to be this awareness, certainly in the UK, um, that there was this rich culture that needs drawing upon and developing um, so that we can take the circus forward into the next millennium. For sure. Uh, one of the most fascinating uh, circus artists for me that you profile in your book is Miss Lala. Can you, can you tell us something about her and her work that uh, was admired in her time? Yeah, Miss Lala is, is is quite a popular figure. A lot of people want me to talk about her. Um, I think because the two, the two facts: one, one, she was a woman in a man's society, and uh, second, that um, she was a black performer. Um, Miss Lala was born um, in the eighteen fifties in northern Germany in a, in a place called Stettin. Um, it's now part of Poland. Her father was an African American called William Brown. Uh, her mother was um, uh, of German origin, Marie Borchardt. Um, why William Brown was in northern Germany at that period um, is not known. Um, there are two theories. One, that he was a performer himself, which is a possibility. And the other one, that he was um, a mariner of some description and arrived at Stettin, which, which was uh, near the coast, and stayed. And he'd obviously been there a while because... Uh, Bislala, who was born, um, she had a long name actually. She was born Anna Albertina Olga Brown, and she was very often referred to as Olga. Uh, she was the the youngest of several children, so obviously William Brown had been there for some while. And uh, Olga began performing around the age of nine years old, um, and then by the time she got to her teens, she had moved to Paris and was making a name for herself as an aerialist. Uh, as she developed her skills, one of her more well-known acts was that she would uh, hang from the trapeze bar by her knees, and then from uh, a jaw piece, a mouthpiece, she would then um, have a cast iron cannon suspended from her jaws. And not only that, um, it would then be lit and fired while she was still holding it. Um, and this was quite a sensational act, which was when she was about to come to England, um, it, it hit the press. It was uh, apparently quite abhorrent in certain sections of the press um, where it was uh, um, basically said it was, it was not an act worthy of seeing and certainly not worthy of something a lady should be doing um but when she did actually come to to the uk it took the place by storm and um mm -hmm. she became very very popular she later went on to appear with um a female partner called who went by the professional name of kyra or kyra um, um and this was a, a stage name for somebody with a totally unpronounceable name of theophila 
Zetsky, or something to that effect. Um, mm-hmm. She was she was an Austrian, and whereas Miss um, Lala was um, very very black in skin coloration, um, Kyra was very very pale, and they formed an aerial act known as the uh, black and white butterflies. Um, or sometimes the two butterflies, and they toured France um, and beyond, and appeared in England as well to much acclaim. Uh, Olga Miss Lala married. Um, sorry, can you still hear me? My yeah. So sorry, my screen went blank at that moment. Sorry. Um, okay. That's okay. Um, uh, Miss Lala married um, an, an African American called Emmanuel Woodson. And he was a contortionist, and he was uh, in Europe at the time. They married and and had uh, a couple of children. And they then went on to tour um, quite widely throughout the world. They went certainly went down as far as Australia and New Zealand. Um, I'm not sure. I have no record that they went to the States, uh, as it happens. Um, and sort of Olga took on a more managerial role, a director, directing role of uh, a silver ladder act um, with the younger members. And last heard um, of uh, Miss Lala was in 1919. Her husband died in 1915. He he had taken on the management of a variety theatre in Brussels in Belgium. And uh, after he died, she attempted to go to uh, America, but had a passport application refused at least twice. And uh, the last record we have of her was in 1919 on her last passport application form. And after that date... Um, she disappears from the records completely. Um, my own suspicion is that she may have died in Europe, in Belgium, and possibly something I need to try and track down is uh, that she may may have been buried in the same cemetery as her husband. Um, that would seem a strong possibility, but um, that needs further research. Always, always space for research, always something new to find out. <laughs> yes, it's an ongoing project, but well, I'm really excited about your book. Can you tell us where uh, folks can get it? Sure. Um, you can get it directly from the publisher. Uh, that's Modern Vaudeville Press, and their website is www.modernvaudevillepress, all one word, uh, .com forward slash artists forward slash. That'll take you directly to the website. Um, you can, of course, buy it on that famous internet uh, book site. Am I allowed to say it? Uh, sure. Sure. Okay, you can get it on the Amazon site uh, across uh, across all domains, and uh, any good bookshop. If you go in there and you quote the title and uh, my my name, uh, they should be able to get hold of a copy for you. Great. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being our guest today. I really appreciate the chat with you and learning about your research. And I wish you great success with your new book. Thank you very much, and uh, you're more than welcome. I totally enjoyed speaking to you. Oh, hello. A quick note of correction here. Earlier in the interview with Steve Ward, he refers to The Crown as being produced by Veronica Brown. It's actually Veronica Blair, also the woman who produces The Uncle Junior Project, which is an amazing project you should check out. That's it for episode two of the Press Pass podcast with the editor, your front row access to what's happening in the performance world, and a monthly circus news podcast brought to you by Circus Voices and Circus Talk. It's all the circus news in your ear. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and consider taking a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach more people interested in circus and the performing arts. Also, we'd love to hear from you directly. Send your podcast-worthy news to news at circustalk.com.